So we are in Romans chapter 5 this morning. Um, and uh, There's a note sheet there if that's helpful to you this morning. Romans 5, and we are going to begin with prayer this morning. I feel a great need that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes. I remarked several times to people around the house, my house this week, that there is no way that human words can convey the depth of what God has to say to us here. The Spirit of God must take these words from the Scriptures and my attempt to unfold them for you and turn them into a great weight in your soul that will carry you through every day of your lives. So let's pray that the Holy Spirit would do that. Lord God, we look up to you now. Our minds are so small and they are so distracted and little things that we can see with our eyes capture our attention and we think of them as so much greater than what you have done. I pray that you would exalt Jesus Christ in our view today. May we see him as so much more than everything else. And may we regard your grace, may we come to see it as a vast tsunami overwhelming everything in its path. And may we find security and a foundation to stand on in our trials and tribulations. May we find that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we need this confidence. We go through our lives fighting and pushing, frustrated, trying to get what we think we deserve and what we need. But all of it is ours because of your grace. It is our place to, re to rest and to trust. And we will only do that if you are bigger than all of our failures. And so I pray that your grace today would come to occupy that place in our minds. Perhaps only temporarily, we will need to be reminded again. But we pray that you would make this permanent and that you would give us the feeling of these things as well as the understanding. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Human history is a conveyor belt of corpses. There have been approximately 250 generations that have passed since Adam, and all of them, except those of the most five recent generations, all of them have perished. Why do all die? We know from the scripture that death is unnatural. God did not create human beings to have DNA that unravels so that our bodies fall apart and we die. That is scientifically what happens. The ends of our DNA unravel and eventually our body falls apart because of it. But God did not create us that way. Death is unnatural. In the beginning, God created a world that was all very good. Life reigned. There was no death in the world. 
human existence and death were totally foreign to one another. In the beginning, at least, death had no place in the government of this world. It had no rightful claim over any part of this pristine creation of God. Even the animals did not perish. But a radical shift occurred. The world was turned upside down. And now for 6,000 years, death's steady and unrelenting march through this world has strangled the life out of every human being that has walked this planet. We are slaves. We are slaves to death. Man is born into this world shackled to his own coffin by the terrorizing reign of death. We fight against its advance with modern medicine and anti-aging creams and plenty of exercise and even by denying the reality of death. But we cannot escape it. And finally, despite all of our efforts and advances in modern medicine, we who have congratulated ourselves that we have cheated death once again, we all come to discover the morbid reality that it was all a sham. And death catches up with every one of us. One of the most basic questions every human being must answer at some point in his life is this. Why do all men die? If God created a world in which goodness reigned and death was foreign, why is it that all men die? The question confronts us when we come to the realization that death is no respecter of persons. It will knock at your door one day also. You are part of the all. Why? Why do all men die? If God created a world that was all very good, a world where death was a foreigner, how did death get into this good world? And why does every, every, every man lie under its reign? The question is pressing for us. It's one we must answer. Because to answer this question is the only way to get to the answer to another pressing question, which is this. How may man escape death's reign? Is it even possible? How can man live in this world of death? We live in a radically individualistic world. We strive to define ourselves, to develop our own identities. We're trying to figure out who we are. We're trying to figure it out and find ourselves in the midst of this black night of this broken and dying world. We're at work to make ourselves better versions of ourselves. To live up to what we find springing up from within our own hearts. To be true to ourselves. To self-actualize and become all that I have in my plans for myself. We think that we run our own life. And we assume that the power... To climb up into a better world lies within our own ability to achieve. And people of all sorts, people try all sorts of things from drugs to yoga to exercise to work to pleasure 
in order to try to make sense of this world and to find a better world. If you conclude that life and well-being lies in the power of your own hands to achieve, then you will not have understood this world in the way that God has made it. You do not have the ability to find life. You will be like a prisoner dragging a heavy ball and chain from his ankle who is nevertheless trying to rise and fly. And the reason you inhabit a world of death and unhappiness today is not, first of all, because of your own choices. The scripture is clear. We live in a world of decay and death, and getting free of it lies beyond our power to achieve because the reason we are in the mess we are in lies beyond us. The path to freedom and light and life lies outside of ourselves. I want you to look at one word in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read the whole passage in a minute. But we'll come back to those ideas in a minute. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 14, the last line, who was a type of the one who was to come. What is a type? A type is a thing or an event or a person that we read about in the Old Testament and that thing or event or person actually looks forward to another thing or event or person that we see in the New Testament. That's called the antitype, the type and the antitype. And the type bears certain resemblances to the antitype. They're alike in some ways. There's, there's a common pattern that we see between the two of them. But the type is also very dissimilar. To the antitype as well. So, for example, think of the man Joseph, the end of the book of Genesis, beloved son of his father, hated by his brothers, sold for the price of a slave in silver, raised up to become Lord of all things, made the savior of the whole world. Does that sound familiar? Sound at all like Christ? Joseph is a type of Christ. As we look at Joseph, we learn something about Christ. We see a common pattern between the two. But there's also some major dissimilarities between Joseph and Christ. For example, Joseph provides physical salvation for the whole world by storing grain and dispensing it, while Christ provides eternal salvation for the whole world by suffering and death. Joseph is a type of Christ, but Christ goes far beyond Joseph. He does something Joseph never could. And Joseph shows up in the story of Genesis to show us a little picture of what it will be like when the ultimate, when Christ, the antitype, comes. And Paul tells us here that someone was a type of the one who was to come. And let's read now Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and you find out who is the type and who is the antitype. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whether we get through the entire passage or not, I'm not sure today, but we're going to start at least. I want to point out to you the outline and repeated ideas that we find in this passage. Look with me at verse 12, the second and third word of the verse. Therefore, just as, just as a certain thing was true. In other words, Paul is introducing to us a comparison. Just as one thing, so also is the other but the other side of the comparison does not show up in verse 12, and that's why the end of verse 12 ends the way that it does, almost as though Paul breaks off his thought and turns to a different subject. Where does Paul complete his comparison? He completes it in verse 18, therefore, as, here he goes, he's going to start his comparison again, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. There's a comparison between the two. And the comparison continues in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And you see that theme of similarity in comparison once again in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are similarities in this passage that Paul wants to call our attention to. But there's also dissimilarities. Look with me at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. And look with me at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. It's like, it's just as, but it's not like. And Paul wants to help us understand those dissimilarities, what's the relationship between the one and the other, those dissimilarities? Look with me at verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Look at verse 17. If, because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I think it's clear as we read through this, the two things that are being compared are Adam and Christ. Paul says, Adam is a type of the one who is to come. That was Christ. What's the relationship between Adam and Christ? Well, just as with Joseph, there's some similarities. And just as with Joseph, there's some differences. And what Paul wants to do is not set Adam and Christ side by side like this. He wants to tell us about Adam and then say Christ is much more. What he has done, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, abounds over Adam and what he has done. So examining Adam then will help us understand Christ to a degree. And that's the heart of what Paul's doing here. The problem is that what Paul has to say about Adam, we actually don't like it. What Paul has to say in verse 12 about Adam. And so in verses 13 and 14, Paul actually argues to prove to us that what he says about Adam in verse 12 is true, even if we don't agree. Paul doesn't want to overstate his case or actually to understate it. If Adam and Christ are exact parallels, then we'll come out with an impoverished view of Christ. And so Paul then at the end of verse 14, he argues his point of verse 12 in verses 13 and 14. And then beginning in verse 15, he does not want to leave us with an impoverished view of Christ. He wants to say Christ and God's grace in him are so much more than Adam. And he continues that theme until the end of verse 17. And then he returns to complete his comparison between Adam and Christ in verses 18 and 19. Verse 20, Paul returns to answer the question of why the law? And you'll see that by the time we get done with verse 19, you'll be asking that question too. Why did God give us the law then? And he sums it all up in verse 21 by showing the glory of God's grace in Christ revealed. Now, Paul repeats several words to describe the similarities and dissimilarities between Adam and Christ. And I want to show them to you. We're just noticing some things about this passage before we start to put it together, okay? So look with me at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. The word one shows up 12 times in these verses. It's the greatest concentration of the word one in the entire New Testament. Paul has a huge emphasis here on one. You can see that in verse 12, he speaks of one man who is Adam. Sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam. And look at the second half of verse 15. The free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. So there are two men, and Paul wants to say to us, each of these two men is one man. Paul speaks of other things that are one in these verses. Look with me at the beginning of verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation. And look at the second half of verse 18. So one act of righteousness rain, uh, sorry, lost, leads to justification in life. One man, one trespass or one act of righteousness 
And look with me at the beginning of verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience. One man's disobedience in contrast with the second half of verse 19. The one man's obedience. One is a huge part of what Paul has to say here. But there's more. Go back with me to verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. The word many or all shows up frequently here. Many shows up five times. The word all shows up four times. For example, look at verse 15. What does Paul have to say about many? Verse 15, for if, middle of the verse, for if many died. Second half of verse 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Many died. Grace abounded for many. Look at the second half of verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses look at verse 19 as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous and look with me at the word all we noticed it in verse 12 just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned Look at verse 18. As one man's trespass led to condemnation for all. And the second half of verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One, many, and all. What's the relationship between the one and the many or the all? There are two more words that I want to point out to you in this passage that are repeated, that are major parts of what Paul's saying. Look with me at, I didn't even put the references down, so you're going to have to do some Bible study this afternoon. Go and look for the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, like a king, king's reign. Who reigns in this passage? And one more. Should, say, should tell you rain five times. You'll find the word rain five times. But probably the dominant emphasis in these verses is the word grace. Five times you find the word grace. And five times you find the word gift. In fact, the word gift is a huge emphasis here, and here's the reason why. The Greek language in which the New Testament is written has three different words for gift. Paul uses every one of them in this passage. All three words for gift in the New Testament show up here. Paul wants to say gift in every way that he can. So one, many are all reigning in gracious gift of God. Now, what is Paul saying about these ideas? How do we put them all together? Well, if we're to understand the passage, we've got to look at the end of verse 14 again. Adam, the one man, was a type of the one who was to come. That would be the other man, which is Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. And so there's similarities 
and dissimilarities between Adam and Christ that we would expect to see. What are the similarities? How is Adam like Christ? If we understand Adam, what will that tell us about Christ? Paul gives us four statements in verse 12 to help us understand Adam and what he did. Let's read verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Paul's going to tell us the other side of the type in verse 18 when he completes that comparison by showing us Christ, the other one man. What does the scripture say to us here about Adam? Four statements. First of all, sin came into the world through one man. Second statement in verse 12 is this, death came with sin. The third phrase is death spread to all men, but there's a very important word, and so death spread to all men. And the final phrase is because all sinned. Let's see if we can understand each one of these phrases. It will help us to compare these phrases with the rest of the passage to understand what God is saying here. Let's take the first one. Sin came into the world through one man. God created a world that was all very good. No death, no evil, no decay, no sickness. But sin entered into the world. The picture that is drawn here is not the picture of an invasion. Sin did not invade this world by force. Instead, the picture that is given to us by the word came. Came is what you do when you hear a knock at the door and you go and open the door and welcome your guest in. Adam opened the door and welcomed sin in. That's what Paul's saying. Sin came into the world through one man. He opened the door to sin. Sin came in, but it did not come in as a peaceful co-occupant of this world alongside man. Man had been created to reign, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air and over all the earth, God said. Man was created as the king. And sin, when Adam welcomed sin in, sin did not come with peaceful intentions. And it didn't come to share rulership of this world with Adam. Sin came in and overthrew the government of mankind so that now man is a slave to death. And that's why Paul says at the, in the middle of verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Sin came in, verse 12, with sin came death, death through sin, and now sin and death reign. And you can find the connection between those two. Look at verse 21. As sin reigned in death, sin came in and set up its own government over man, and now every man is a slave to death. So back to verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death came along with sin. Sin brought a guest with it, but this guest did not come because sin had called this guest. The guest came because God always sends this guest anywhere sin goes. Sin is always followed by death 
and God is the one who sees to it that sinners die. When Adam opened the door to sin, sin entered into the world and God sent along with sin death. Because in God's universe, the wages of sin is always death. By God's own decree, sin always results in death and God sees to that. And so sin came in, not as a peaceful co-occupant of this world alongside, alongside man. Instead, sin came in to reign over man. And if sin reigns, then death reigns. It dominates every human being. Human history then is nothing but a conveyor belt of corpses. All die. The grim reaper, death, dominates this entire world. And that's what Paul puts his finger on in the third phrase in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Adam opened the door, sin strode boldly through, death accompanied sin. Now look with me at that word, that very important word, so in verse 12, and so death spread to all men. That word tells us that this event when Adam opened the door, when sin entered, when death entered with it. This event was the mechanism by which death came to dominate every man. The emphasis in verse 12 is like this. Sin entered the world through one man and death came with sin. This was how death spread to all men because all sin. One man sinned, and in that way, death spread to all men. That word so tells us that Paul has just given us the mechanism by which death spread like a disease to all men. Why do all men die? Because one man opened the door, and sin entered, and death came with sin. And in that way, by Adam's opening the door, death spread to all men. All men die because of that man's sin. Hard to receive, right? Have we misinterpreted verse 12? Look at verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass. Look at verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Look at verse 18. One trespass, whose is that? Adam's. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. We can't conceive of this. We don't like this. How could one man's sin mean that I reap the consequences? That I die because of Adam's sin? And that's what the final phrase of verse 12 helps us with. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And that was how, that's the word so, that was how death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam opened the door to sin, it entered and brought with it death and death spread through to all men and all men die. Because of, Adam's act of, because of Adam's act of sin, 
sorry, because Adam's act of sin is the way that death spread through to all men. If Adam's one act affected all of us, then we all bear the consequences for that sin. But this phrase, because all sinned, is telling us something more. We can't understand what this means that every human being since Adam, I'm sorry, misreading my notes here, lost my place. When we read the phrase, because all sinned in verse 12, we think, well, absolutely, ever since Adam, we have all been sinning. Is that what Paul means when he says, because all sinned? And that's why they die. We can't understand that final phrase to mean that because of what verse 12 says. Listen to it. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And that's how it was that death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason is because of what we have seen in these previous phrases. Adam's one act of sin apparently then was the act of all of us. He opened the door, death entered, it spread through to all of us because when he sinned, all of us did. Look at verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And that's why we all die. Because by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And when sin enters, death does too. And so, in Adam's sin, death spread through to all men. So that, verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. We're very slow to receive this idea. How can it be that we all sinned when Adam sinned? We weren't even alive, were we? Paul gives us two things to argue that this is true. These are his attempts to help us to change our minds on this point. To accept what he's saying here. Listen to what Paul says at this point. The first thing Paul does is he argues this point that it was by the transgression of Adam that death spread through to all men. He argues his point by showing that death existed in the world even when human beings were not sinning. Look at verse 13. Or maybe we'll just finish up verse 12. Because all sinned, and at least in my translation of Scripture, there's a big dash there which tells us, Paul's been talking about something, he stops, he transitions to another idea, and we've seen in verse 18 that that's when he comes back to complete the comparison. What does Paul transition to? And why does he feel the need to transition? He feels the need to transition because you say, but I wasn't even there. I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. Why does Paul say that I sinned when Adam sinned? Why does he say that one transgression made me accountable for that? Why does he say that one trespass made many sinners? Paul's got to argue for that, and he does. He argues for it, and he gives us the reasons for it in verse 13, beginning with the word for or because. Here's the reason Paul can say that, because sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, 
Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What Paul is saying here is actually not hard to comprehend if we just think about it a little bit. Paul goes to work here in these verses to help us understand his statement that death spread to all men because all sinned. This is God's word to us, and we've got to accept this because actually the gospel hangs on this. To reject this point is actually to reject the ability for Christ to save you, as we will see later on. What is verses 13 and 14 saying? We saw in verse 12 that Paul's just told us how death and sin got into the world through one man. He's told us that death spread to all men when Adam opened the door. And we push back and say, but I wasn't there. I didn't do what Adam did. And Paul Paul retorts to us, yes, you did. When Adam sinned, you sinned too. And Paul proves that to us now. And he proves that by showing us what was going on in the world before human beings began transgressing God's law given through Moses. Think of the time from Adam to Moses. What was true about that world? The first thing that Paul says about that world is he says that sin was in the world before the law was given. Verse 13, sin indeed was in the law in the world before the law was given. He can't be referring to the law that God gave to Adam. Before God gave that law to Adam, don't eat of the fruit. Sin was already in the world up at, but before that, before the Garden of Eden. No. What he's saying is before the law, the Mosaic law was given, sin was already in the world. What does he mean by that? Between Adam and Moses, sin existed in this world. It was not a sinless world. From Adam to Moses, there was approximately 4,500 years of human history, and during it all, sin was in the world, Paul says. We don't understand exactly what he's doing with that at this point, but let's just start there. For that 4,500 years, sin existed in the world. The second point Paul makes is this. But sin is not counted when there is no law. Paul makes this point at least three times in his writings. You can go and find it. You cannot disobey a law if there is no law to disobey. You can't break a law until God gives one. Before God God gave the law, Moses, let's think back 4,500 years, was anybody actually transgressing his laws? There weren't any to transgress, is Paul's point. Now, that doesn't mean that people weren't doing wrong things. It just means they weren't actually breaking God's law because God had not given a law. The only law in human history up to the point of Moses was what? Don't eat of the tree. Did Noah break that law? Did Terah break that law? Did Ishmael break that law? Did any of the patriarchs break that law? Were they actually breaking God's laws? That's Paul's point. God doesn't count sin when there's no law. He's not holding men accountable when there's no law that they have broken. Sin was in the world, though, during this time. And that's what we struggle with. Wait a minute. They weren't sinning during that time? No, Paul's already said sin was in the world. But God doesn't hold men accountable. He doesn't count that sin when there's no law. But there was sin in the world. How do you know there was sin in the world, Paul, if there was no law? Isn't the law what tells us what sin is? Look at the next phrase. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
Why do people die? The wages of sin is death. Why did everybody die before Moses when there was no law? What sins were they breaking, is Paul's point. Even though God does not hold men accountable where there is no law, nevertheless death reigned, and that tells us sin was in the world. How did it get in? Did everybody let it in? Sin came into the world through one man, Paul says. And death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Paul tells us, fourthly, that this sin existed in the world and brought death. But the sin that was bringing the death was not like the transgression of Adam. That word transgression there is actually really important because Paul uses it on purpose here. The word transgression means the breaking of a known law or command. So Paul is saying, look, there was no law. Adam had a law and he broke a known law. But all the people up until Adam, they weren't sinning like Adam did in transgressing God's law. Yes, they were doing wrong things, but God doesn't hold people accountable unless there's a law that they're transgressing. But nevertheless, they died. Why did they die? You can think about it this way. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Death is a penalty for transgressing the law of God. What law did he break? What sin did, death, did Seth commit? Why did he die? All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Death is a penalty for transgressing the law of God. What law did Enosh break? Why did he die? All the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Death is a penalty for transgressing the law of God. What law did Kenan break? What sin did he commit? Why did he die? All the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Death is a penalty for transgressing the law of God. What law did he break? What sin did he commit? Why did he die? And we could go all the way down through Genesis 5 until we get to Lamech. 770 years, he dies. What law did he break? Genesis 7, all the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock and beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Think about it this way. All the days of baby Joe, the first child my wife and I conceived, were less than two months in the womb, and that child died. Death is a penalty for transgressing the law of God. What law did baby Joe break? What sin did he commit? Why did he die? There have been millions of miscarriages in the history of this world, and yet not even the safety and warmth of a mother's womb, not even in the safety and warmth of a mother's womb, 
can a human being escape the spread of death? Death, the grim reaper, invades the womb, the inner sanctum where life is nurtured. Its spread is pervasive. And the question we must ask is for what transgression did they all die? Paul's point is clear. From Adam to Moses, there was no law, so they weren't transgressing. Was it for individual transgressions of God's law that Seth died? Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech. What transgressions did they actually commit? There was no law for them to break. And you say, but they knew in their consciences that what they were doing was wrong. That may be true, but what about infants who die in the womb? Has God done an injustice in taking their life before their conscience even registers? that what they do or don't do is sin. Sin was in the world even when there was no law, Paul says, and we know sin was in the world because death reigned. It reigned over everyone. Everyone died. It reigned because when Adam opened the door by transgressing the law of God, sin entered and death came with sin, and in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin was the sin of us all. And so, verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 17, death reigns because of one man's trespass. Can you accept that? Did you know your salvation hangs on accepting that? Look at the last phrase of verse 14. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. The second thing Paul does to convince us that what he has said in verse 12 is true is he tells us that Adam is like Christ. Paul tells us that Adam, the whole abominable situation he plunged this human race into, Adam was actually a type of Christ. Adam is, if Adam is a type then, we would expect there to be some similarities and some differences. And that's exactly what Paul develops for us in the remaining verses of this section of Scripture. We find the comparison between Adam and Christ in verses 18 and 19, and we've read them, but I want to read them again at this point. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so... One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If God's arrangement of Adam for us all is not viable, then God's arrangement of Christ for us all is not viable. Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? How unjust that God would hold us for Adam's transgression. And how unjust that God would hold Christ for mine and let me go free. That Christ's death would count for many. 
that is God's grace, his kindness to us. We need to sort out one word, and then we're going to try to put all this together and finish up. Look with me at verse 18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's why the cemeteries are full. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all, 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 all men. All men. Will everyone be saved? You might want to put a little note next to that word all and listen to write down 1 Corinthians 15 verses 21 through 22. Listen to it. For as by a man came death. You think you understand that now a little better from Romans 5? By a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Listen to it. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Who died? All who were in Adam, every human being. Who's made alive? All who are in Christ, all of them who are in Christ. And so when we read the word all in verse 18, we've got to be thinking of that. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men in Adam, so the one act of righteousness, Christ's act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men in Christ. We're going to come back next week and try to finish up verses 15 through 17. The dissimilarities. It's at that point that God's grace shines most abundantly. Well, actually, you know what? We're going to try to get through it in about three minutes. Because God's grace, Paul intends to magnify his grace. That's where the passage ends. That grace might be seen to overwhelm and superabound over everything. That grace might be so much higher than Adam's transgression, so much more powerful, might maybe seen to be so much more powerful. But that's exactly the problem. So far, we've only noticed the similarities. And so Christ and Adam seem about like this. But it's in verses 15 through 17 that Paul does this. Much more, not like, much more, superabounding, abundance of grace. It's where he actually highlights how much greater God's grace is than Adam's transgression. So if we're going to finish up the passage, we really have to get through verses 15 through 17. So let's move quickly here. There are some very prominent ways in which Adam and Christ differ. We've pointed out the words not like and much more and abounded. In what ways is the free gift not like the trespass? The first is there's a difference in the nature of the act. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass for, and he explains that. The second way in which the free gift is not like the trespass is found in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For, if the judgment, and so on. And verse 7, for, if, and he gives us a second reason that verse 16, the result of the one man's sin is not like the free gift. So two ways that they are different. And that second way has two subpoints. okay, in the passage. So let's work through these quickly here. First of all, 
The free gift and the trespass are different in the nature of the act. The word free gift is clear enough to us in verse 15. Free gifts come freely. Nothing is owed. If it were, the one who gave the gift would not be giving the gift, right? If he owed it to you. The word trespass is a general word for sin, but it focuses on the fact that the one who has committed the sin has fallen down when he should have stood upright. He owes an upright standing, but he falls down. Adam should have stood upright. God had given him his law. He was obligated to keep it, but Adam failed in his obligation. He did not do it. He fell short, and the result is that many died. Adam had an obligation. He failed to keep it, and the result is death for all men. Christ had no obligation. Does he owe us anything? He had no obligation. And so what he gave us was a free gift. To give someone what they owe, how hard is that? What you owe them, how hard is that? Is it difficult for your employer to pay you? Probably not. He owes you. What about giving a gift to your family? Not particularly hard. You love them. You almost feel like you owe it to them. They've done so much for you. What about the man who robbed your house? You give him a gift? Giving a free gifts, especially when they're not deserved, is so much greater than just meeting an obligation. God's grace far exceeds Adam's sin. Christ's obedience brought more than simply new life to us. It didn't just reset us back to zero. He didn't just fix our problem. He went far beyond that. He gave us a gift that Adam didn't even have when he started out. God's grace exceeds all of our sin. The second difference is in verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Here we're dealing with a difference in the result of the actions of these two men. Because of Christ's obedience, what's the result? Because of Adam's disobedience, what's the result? The results are not the same. What they did was not the same, and the results of what they did are not the same. The first difference is found in the middle of verse 16, for the judgment following the one man's trespass brought condemnation. The difference here is the difference in the amount of sin involved and the result of that sin. Look at verse 16. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Judgment, one trespass, condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Let's think about what he's saying here. There's two things we've got to understand first. See the word condemnation and see the word justification. They are exact opposites in Scripture. The place that Adam brought us is the exact opposite of where Christ brings us. The second thing to notice is that the contrast in verse 16 is between one man's sin, one trespass, and many trespasses. And that's surprising because Christ didn't trespass. But by the time he offered himself up, there was a whole lot more than one trespass. There were many of them. And what was the result? One man's trespass. Result? Death for all men. Many trespasses. What's the result? Brimstone? Total destruction? The result of many trespasses following many trespasses 
It's justification. Adam plunges us this way, and Christ doesn't do this. Adam plunges us this way, and Christ does this. In spite of one trespass, in spite of many trespasses, God's grace overwhelms them all. And the second way that the results of Adam's act differ from Christ is in verse 17. It's a difference in the position that each act leaves those it affects. Where did Adam's act leave us and where did Christ's act leave us? Adam's sin, verse 17, one man's trespass, because of it, death reigned. We are slaves. It reigned through that one man, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. The difference or the similarity is in the word reign. In Adam's case, something reigned. In Christ's case, something reigned. What reigned in Adam's case? Death. What reigned in Christ's case? Not life. Us. We are made the kings. It's not simply that we were restored to paradise in Eden. Instead, we are exalted and lifted up to reign in life. See what it says? Death reigned. How much more will those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of eternal life reign? You have been made a king by the grace of God. You will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so, I'm going to work through a few points of significance. And I'm just going to read through them. It's on the recording and you can go back and pick them up. First thing this means to us is man is not the king of his own fate. We do not will ourselves to be what we are. The radically modern idea that I can become anything that I wish to be, that I can follow my own heart and realize my own dreams. Passage like Romans 5 smashes that idea. It is not ultimately me who determines my destiny. I'm not the king of my life. And look with me at verse 21. You either lie under the reign of sin and death or you lie under the reign of grace, but you do not lie under the reign of yourself. We are not the masters of our own fate. It does not mean that our choices are not, we are not responsible for our choices, but it does mean that ultimately your works are not the basis of your salvation. The second thing this means is our predicament that we are under God's wrath and condemnation lies far beyond our ability to change. What could you do in your 70 years to fix what Adam did? It's a fact of history. It's established. You can't rewrite history. How are you going to get out from under the sentence of condemnation? Not by your own works. Only by grace. Third, the salvation we've experienced in Christ lies far beyond our ability to get for ourselves. We lie under the reign of righteousness and life by God's grace because of Christ's actions. Before you were even conceived, Christ obeyed. The effects of his obedience extend to you. Your salvation was secured and purchased and made effectual and completed before you even took a breath. Christ's death did not make salvation possible. Christ's death made salvation effectual. Can you change history? His obedience for you? 
Fourth, your performance, affect, your performance affects your standing with God, not in the least. God actually sent the law with all of its demands that he knew we would fail to perform in order to increase the amount of grace that was required to overcome human sin. You say, but what about my actions? Do they mean nothing? Am I not condemned for my own sin? Look at verse 20. Now the law came in, why? The law came in so that everybody get condemned. No, everybody was already in that case. The law came in only to increase the trespass. Up until the law, there was only one trespass that God's grace had to overcome. But the law came in to make a whole bunch more of them. And we've been breaking the law ever since. There's been a flood of iniquity. And God's grace has overcome it all. God introduced the law so that his grace would have that much higher of a mountain to overwhelm. And so your performance affects your standing with God, not in the least. God does not deal with you according to your own sins. Have we properly understood this section? The effect sin has is to increase our experience of the grace of God. The more you sin, the greater the display of God's grace. Let's sin all the more, right? If we come out of Romans 5 thinking that, we've understood Romans 5 correctly, and you know how I know? Because look at Romans 6, 1. Then, then what should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You've got to come out of Romans 5 thinking, well, then I'll just sin all I want. God's grace, I have so much, I'll just experience so much more of God's grace. And if you think that you've understood Romans 5 right, you just have to look at Romans 6 and say, actually, that's not the direction we should go. God's grace teaches us good works, not more sin. So what does this mean? When you come to the end of your day and you think of praying to the Lord, what comes to your mind? Will you be received? What about all the sin from today? Does it ever prevent you from getting down and really praying boldly? Your performance before God does not affect your standing at all. Through the one act of obedience, many Your performance affects only your place under the fountain of grace in the sense it doesn't move you from under the fountain. It only means that God opens the tap further until the graces, until graces flow engulfs even the greatest of sins. That's what Paul means by grace, abounding all the more. And last... The actions of no other man affect your place in God's love. No human being can affect this, save Christ. Adam, great effect. Christ, great effect. Now listen to what he says about everybody else. Did they have that kind of power over you? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love? There are only two men in God's plan in human history who have the ability to touch you and your standing before God, Adam and Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are secure. Lord God, you have given us an amazing thing in giving us your grace. Truly, it has abounded over all of our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest upon these things today we scramble about 
to find blessing for ourselves, to meet our own needs, as though there was a Father in heaven who had turned his back upon us. Give us confidence before you in prayer because of Christ. And may your grace discipline us and teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. And we ask in Christ's name.